Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we talk about when we talk about faith. On today's live episode, we welcome Dean of the Andover Newton Seminary at Yale, Sarah Drummond. Welcome. This is great. Have a nice, relaxed conversation. Thank you for the message this morning. Thank you so much. Really thoughtful and provoking. And uh, we're really delighted to have you here. And actually, I want to start with something that's not related to today, but to your work in another sphere. Just describe for, for us this morning just a little bit. I know it's been a very long time in coming but how Andover Newton Theological School, oldest Protestant seminary in the country, became Andover Newton at Yale. I'd be happy to, and I appreciate whenever an alum wants to hear the real story, because as you can imagine, there are lots of versions of this story out there. It's sort of like the Gospels. There's lots of different versions, and if you put them all together, you get somewhere halfway to the truth. So will you have four authorized versions of this when you're done? Oh, there's way more than four. We have social media now. Oh, great. So, uh, so hi, everybody. I'm Sarah. I met you earlier, and... Um, and Ed's kindly asked me to describe the, um, the genesis of Andover Newton at Yale. And in order to do that, I actually do need to go far back in time, even though the answer can still be quite brief, when we think about the um, foundation of Yale University as well as Andover Seminary, which is our predecessor school. So here's what happened. 213 years ago, a theological controversy broke out in New England over the nature of God. Is God known to us in three persons? Is God known to us in one person? And underneath that dispute were all these questions that were coming up um, out of the modern era about the nature of knowledge. Is knowledge most pure when it's scientific, or is it most pure when it's theological? The most pure when it's theological types were the Trinitarians, and the most pure when it's epistemically scientific, that was the Unitarians. So the Unitarians and the Congregationalists split. So if you're ever driving through New England and you see a little old town, and you see a UU church on one side, and you see a UCC church on the other side, look at the the date on the building, because one of them is from the first 25 years of the 19th century. That's when the split took place. Churches generally split, and only one got the sanctuary in the custody battle. Yale was squarely in the Trinitarian camp. Harvard was squarely in the Unitarian camp. So the president of Yale, Timothy Dwight, got on his horse, clippity-clop, clippity-clop, rode through the night, and fomented dissent in the Harvard faculty. (laughs) that led three faculty members to break away and start the first graduate school of any kind, the first independent graduate school, which was Andover. (laughs) Since that time, Andover Seminary stayed connected with Yale over the years, particularly over matters of ministry and theology, (laughs) but operated as an independent entity that moved three different times. Now, the last time we moved, none of us had been born yet. 
So it's easy to forget, but it's been a school that's had lots of different um, chapters of its life. The most recent move was our choice to move from Newton, Massachusetts to Yale Divinity School. And what we've become is an embedded school within Yale Divinity School that focuses specifically on ministry in locally governed congregations. Locally governed congregations, um, the shorthand would be UCC, American Baptist, Unitarian Universalist. We've come a long way, baby. (laughs) And our program is really focusing in on the 50 or 60 students at this 400 student divinity school who want to do work like what Ed and Dan are doing. Wow. And so starting in July, you will be the president of Andrew Yes. Newton. Technically, my title will be um, Her Majesty, the Queen <laughs> of All I Survey, because um, Yale already has a... Exactly. Someone Get over heard yourself. your message. Get over yourself. Well, so evidently, Yale Success already... Success at every level. That's right. Yale already has a president, so I've decided to go with Her Majesty, the Queen. Beautiful. But at Yale, I'll be called the Dean of Andover Newton, and in Andover Newton, I'll be called the Founding Dean, because I'll be the first dean uh, in our new... to be called to our new space. Great. How many students are studying now? Is this sort of the entry-level class that just started? The, the entry-level class is... Um, number is 30. Okay. We have 30 students. Up until now, so for two years, we operated two campuses, one in New Haven and one in Newton, Massachusetts, giving time for our students in Newton to graduate and for us to build up our operation in New Haven. This is our first year that we're operating only in New Haven, and we've got a, a class of 30 now, and we have more than that in applications for next year. So we do suspect that our goal of having about 50 or 60 students within the bigger sphere will come to us sooner rather than later. Okay, so thank you, and congratulations, that, that's exciting. Thank you, it's a great opportunity. So please, if you have questions, just jump in at any time. I'm just gonna throw us out into the, the deep end Ooh, deep. of the pool here, for, right to go. the deep that's side, right. okay? So you are training uh, clergy, you're gonna be training students to become clergy in local churches, very much like Round Hill Community Church. How are you thinking that students are going to be trained to help their congregations discern their vocations. Oh. So when students are going to be trained, uh-huh. they're going to go out and they're going to be called by churches to do what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense is that the church has been very wobbly in this area mm, and has, has not really given adequate attention to it. Mm-hmm. So many times parishioners will say, what do you mean by vocation? What do you mean by calling? We've mm-hmm. sort of lost that language. Uh-huh. How are you going to change that at Andover Newton? Well, thank you for the question. I would counter, <laughs> though, that I don't know if there's ever been a time in Christian history where institutions were really attuned to vocation. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I feel like we're doing a whole new thing. Okay. Institutions are, um, are really tangled up with the power structures of their culture. And that tangling sometimes makes it really difficult to think about what's the most faithful, what's the most faithful response. So if we are successful in educating clergy who can help congregations discern their, um, their, vo- their institution's vocation as well as every individual member's vocation, I think we will have done something quite groundbreaking, Mm. and I think it's worth a shot. I do. Uh, But coming back to your question of how are we thinking about educating these clergy. So we've built our program, our 
um, formation for ministry program around six key competencies. And I'll list them for you because I think that will answer your question. So the first competency is what we, we call the mother of all competencies, which is integration. A minister needs to be able to draw from the Bible and theology and life experience and culture and weave them together into a cohesive worldview in real time. Students at Yale get nothing but resources. We're trying to help them find ways to bring them together into that cohesive narrative. Because one of the key competencies of a minister is being able to describe reality, being able to make sense of the world. The second competency is building community. The third is practicing compassion, both in the form of pastoral care as well as advocating for justice for the vulnerable. The fourth competency that we just um, finished taking some time exploring is emotional intelligence. How do you read a community and sense your way into close relationship that's connected but separate at the same time? Separate enough to think strategically, connected enough to know the people and what they need. Uh, next, we're, moving the, we're just moving into our unit on leadership. And then finally, we'll work with our students on spiritual practice in their own lives. Mm. One thing we know about ministers is that the day that your ministers lose track of their own spiritual lives and their own walk with God, everybody's in trouble. Because this is a very particular well from which they must draw. Mm -hmm. And if that well runs dry for lack of, um, lack of um, care and attention, then um, we know that that's the main, the main cause of clergy burnout. Mm. Sounds like a really exciting curriculum. It is an exciting curriculum, and it was a, um, it was a real passion project for our faculty. Mm. For our faculty to have the chance to think about, okay, Yale Divinity School is providing this breadth, this incredible breadth, breadth. Where do we, as those who care about leaders for faith communities, where do we give them the depth? Mm -hmm. The breadth is covered, so we can really focus in on that, that, um, that deep learning about ministry and faith communities. Great. Any questions yet from our little congregation here? I've got another one I can ask in the meantime. By the way, uh, Yale students are able to take classes with Andover Newton faculty, Andover Newton students, yes. likewise from Yale. So it's yes. a fully integrated. It's fully integrated, just like our very favorite, favorite competency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So our, yes, our students apply to um, Yale Divinity School first. And if they're admitted to the MDiv program, they can pursue our diploma program. The diploma is granted in conjunction with the degree, and it signifies readiness for ministry. I see. All of the programs that we offer are available to all of Yale Divinity School, and our students have access to all the other programs, not just at the Div School, but throughout the university. So if you're seeing the practice of ministry as being so central to what you do as Andover Newton, and you've developed these six core competencies, what uh, are you looking for from churches in the area in terms of support for this? I'm assuming you'd want to be developing relationships or whatnot. It's so wonderful that you asked me that question. So I didn't have to cleverly try to steer the conversation in that direction. It took me all week to think there of it. There you go, so all week, I'm, yes. I'm feeling unburdened. Oh, <laughs> so um, I, I, this is my 14th year at Andover Newton. 
And one of the great opportunities that we have in moving to Southern Connecticut is uh, the, the kind of shadow side of the great loss of leaving the greater Boston area, which is our relationship with our partner churches. The United Church of Christ and the other denominations that we serve really don't happen at the denominational level. These are local church traditions. So we're really in the business of trying to make new friends. The kinds of things that we really need from our friends are um, your prayers, your support. We need your financial support in that we are offering a program whose goal it is to have those who are serving congregations take on no seminary debt. We need that kind of financial support that goes to our scholarships to make it possible for these particular Yale graduates to not be paying Yale back for the rest of their careers. We also are really eager to find partners in leadership. We've got a board of trustees that has historically come from our local churches. So if there's someone in the congregation who has a real passion for, um, real passion for um, governance type questions, cares a lot about education, enjoys talking about ministry and theology, we could really use a trustee from this congregation. Mm. And one of my new roles as the president of the school is going to be to cultivate and curate a board of trustees that's really connected. There are so many ways that the connection can be enhanced that um, have more to do with the direct con consultation with the students namely supervised ministry opportunities where a student minister might learn alongside your clergy, all the way up to our cooperative MDiv program where students actually join the staff of churches and get academic credit for some of the work they do. But I've given you a long laundry list of the things that we need. And no, it's because just like when you move house to a new, you know when you move to a new town and you need to find a doctor and a dentist and a, uh, you know, a, whatever-ologist, we need to find these new partners. And the need is, is really, um, the sky's the limit for how far that partnership can go. Mm, exciting. Jake. Uh, curious to hear more about the different education you're offering to your students because of the independence of the churches you're serving as opposed yes. to, I don't know, like, the you know the bigger churches. So mm. what's what what other things do you do, or, or what other uh, or how do you prepare these students other than what you've already told us uh -huh. uh, for that kind of ministry? I'd love you, Jake, to say a little bit more about um, this as opposed to that because that'll help me understand your question better. Well, I understand you're you're, you're developing ministers for churches, independent churches. Yes such as ours, uh -huh. but how is that different from developing ministers for uh, churches for, for, other, uh, uh, well, for other churches, for, for the other bigger Other traditions, churches. maybe. Well, other traditions and then the big question. So I'll take those as two separate ones. So, what, okay. so Jake's asking, I think, what's distinctive about the educational program that we offer? What makes it, what makes it appropriate for the locally governed traditions? And also, how might it differ from, from the education that we offer to students who were in a different tradition? So as for the what's different, when I named those six competencies, flowing from those competencies are particular kinds of educational experiences that we believe will prepare a minister 
to serve very independently. In the locally governed traditions, there's no bishop. There's no national or international body that's going to tell you what to do. And in fact, one of the hallmarks of our tradition is that we don't like being told what to do. And just try telling us what to do. See what happens. So we need to really prepare our students. Tell you our history some days. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, the history, that, and, that, and that is the marker of the UCC in New England, certainly, is that good fences make good neighbors. Thank you very much. But we know just who we are and what we want to do. And sometimes it's really good because sometimes the bishop is just wrong. Sometimes it's awful because we end up getting this Lone Ranger mentality that leaves us feeling, um, as ministers, very isolated and leaves congregations thinking, um, it, congregations thinking that their church is doing things the only way it is to be done, whatever it may be. So when I say, I, let me give you some examples of how we would train a person to be a very independent-minded minister, day one. Um, we're the only um, ministerial preparation program, we call it a formation for ministry program, in the country that requires courses in the business school. We require students take um, two or three classes in the Yale School of Management, which is a school well known for educating uh, business leaders who have a real, um, real not-for-profit or social justice point of view. Still a business school. And they, we recommend particular courses that students could take there to just build a different kind of vocabulary so that, if nothing else, they can interact more effectively with the business leaders from their congregation. And even more ideally, that they can cultivate a lifelong learning practice around leadership. You don't need to take a course in human resources management if you've taken enough business courses to know how to find what you don't know and learn how to train up there. So that's just one example. Another is that we are demanding a lot from our students when it comes to their supervised ministry. So they must do a unit of CPE, clinical pastoral education, which is a hospital. Usually it's a, an internship, a, a chaplaincy residency in a high-stress environment, usually a hospital, which they can do as Yale students, but they have to do as Andover Newton students. And we require all of our students to do at least one year of supervised ministry in a congregation even if they come with tremendous congregation-based experience. Because when you're the minister, it's different. So those are just a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. As for how our education might look different from other, um, that available to other traditions, fact is that the, um, the theology of ordination varies tremendously among traditions. When a person becomes ordained Episcopalian or Roman Catholic, there's an understanding that a change has happened to the ordained person on a cellular level. In our tradition, have you ever heard the term parson to describe a pastor? Parson is Old English for person. We have a very low theology of ordination, meaning that we believe everybody is called to some kind of ministry, and to our clergy, we expect a high level of education, and we delegate to our clergy various tasks, but we don't think that they're superheroes. We don't think that they're superhuman. We think that they have a particular kind of call, and so does each of us. So you got to imagine that if you're educating a person to go through some sort of ontological change upon ordination, there's going to be a lot more top-down in the thinking, 
a lot more heavy-handed, you have to do this and you have to do that, whereas we have to give our students a lot of independence because they're people now and they're going to be people after as well. Mm. Good. Joan. Oh, in answering Jake's question about um, when you talked about teaching, having them go to the business school, mm -hmm. uh, I think that everybody on staff at a church has two additional jobs, and that's fundraising, mm -hmm. which you covered, mm -hmm. and also recruitment. Yes. So how do you teach them to build their church? Mm -hmm. Teaching them to build their church. Well, I was just telling Ed that this is going to be the subject that I'm delving into for a future project I'm working on. I've become really fascinated with the growing body of resources out there on building community. And here's what I see happening. We went through this cultural moment that I think was best typified in the post-World War II America, where everything that happened happened because of an institution. Uh, my colleague, um, Ted Smith, calls that the age of association. That I can't move, I can't put flowers on this altar without a committee. Like, I physically can't do it. I will combust if I do that. That era of, of um, the age of association is what some might call a time where there was a lot of social capital between people in a, society, in, a, in a community, where you join a lot of stuff because it raises your capital. We overcorrected for that institutional era in the 80s and the 90s. And we overcorrected in that we started critiquing to death every form of institution, starting with critiquing the church. That was really the 80s. In our denomination, the last time we grew was 1971. Moving into critiquing um, higher education and um, business leaders, now they're really, I mean, I don't know if there is an institution that's not subject to really demanding scrutiny right now. And that might or might not be, that might or might not be a good or bad thing. Sometimes it's good, and sometimes it gives us the impression that the very best thing we could do is to eliminate our associations, that our associations are just bad for us. Don't go to church because you might get brainwashed or abused. Don't go to a university because they'll charge you through the nose, and who knows if you'll ever really get a great job. Don't go to um, some local civic organization because, God forbid, somebody might say something that offends you or that with which you disagree. Where are we going to stop? Are we just going to all be in our little, like our little units and our families? Some people think that the advent of social media and high-tech communication is the epitome of that associationless era, but I think it's our golden ticket. I really do. Because social media is teaching us people want to be together. And even, it, so if you're a teacher and you've got a classroom, a third grade classroom, and you tell the kids, the girls in the back, to stop whispering, they're going to start passing notes. If you tell people you're not supposed to come together, people will figure out ways to do it. So now it's our responsibility to figure out how to help them to do that well in life-giving ways, in life-affirming ways. I think the first step is getting the people together around something that's really positive, 
like good news. The next step is getting out of the way and letting them find new ways to be together that might not look like what was helpful to us, but that might be helpful to them. No, you didn't. Okay. I don't want to go too It's all long. good. Okay. It's all good. Any other I actually want to follow up on that. I was at a gathering, this was about three or four years ago. It was the Festival of Homiletics. Oh, yeah, okay. In Minneapolis. And one of the persons who stood up and spoke was from Cincinnati. So I'm not sure if I have this story exactly correct, and I've been trying to find out, but the, di- the Episcopal Diocese of Cincinnati, I think, under direction from the bishop, was saying that if a new rector coming into a congregation could not develop a business plan Mm -hmm. with the congregation Mm -hmm. in terms of how it was going to fund its programs, Mm -hmm. not thinking that it was going to be reliant on traditional sources like always the same people pledging, um, there was some ramification to that. Mm -hmm. And that's pushing the idea of fundraising even farther because it's saying not only do we want you to take courses at the business school, that could be great, we want you to understand how you're going to mobilize people to be entrepreneurs because the churches being served by some of your students mm-hmm. are not going to be financially viable, may not be financially viable, right? Mm-hmm. So how are you actually going to push this? It's not just that we're going to teach you the rudiments of fundraising. Uh-huh. We're going to help you understand that you are actually going to have to develop alternative income sources just as monasteries have had to do for centuries. Uh-huh. How are you going to do that? Well, we're already. How are you going to do it? Well, we're already doing it. We're already doing it. But I think in order. Well, first of all, that uh, the bishop's idea from Cincinnati makes me feel physically ill. Like I disagree with it so completely that I actually just need to put out there for the podcast and all the world that I would (laughs) never start that way because first of all, it's just so depressing and so discouraging, and it also centers that which we're trying to decenter. Centers that. The way we're doing things now is quote-unquote normal, and the way we have to do things in the future is somehow marginal. The idea of a plate going around in a church is a very newfangled idea. When we, in the early days of the Congregational Church, which is our predecessor denomination, introduced the idea of voluntary giving, many cried out saying, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And many traditions now look at what we're doing and say the same thing. I co-taught a leadership class with a rabbi, and he had no idea how pledging and tithing worked. And as I explained it to him in front of a classroom, even I could hear how it does not make any sense. And to a Jewish religious leader, that's the dumbest idea imaginable. How do you even know how to budget if you don't know what people are going to be giving and if there's no commitment expected keeps the from mystery them. in keeps the mystery plan. in it and as i said <laughs> thing is the way we're doing it now is new which means it's subject to change but the way i would start it is this i would say to my students that the first thing that you need to do is bring all of that big theological brain that you've been feeding and tending to and um and focused on for all these years in seminary bring that big theological brain into the community you're serving and help them discern God's call. That's step one. And that's a group project. The minister can't bring that. You really need to work with the community. What 
is God calling us to be and to do? And when you find clarity on the mission, a lot of other things start to become obvious in terms of whether they make sense or they don't make sense. So you know that Marie Kondo, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? Very life-changing book for me. That she says that what you're supposed to do is if you are getting rid of stuff, you hold it and say, does this spark joy in me? What we do is we say, does this practice, does this facility, does this um, program bring us closer to God or does this propel us farther away from God? When you have a clear mission, it's not easy, but it's kind of obvious. And then when you've gotten to that point of clarity to say this is what's bringing us closer to God, then and only then do you think about the programmatic expression of that clear sense of mission and how you're going to pay for it. But it's not like we're forgetting you have to pay for it. It's that we're not trying to start there and then let the ministry flow from what we can afford. No, the ministry has to flow from the mission. Now, I'm making it sound like, oh, I've always known this, and I just, oh, I'm so confident. Oh, my God, this is terrifying. And it was terrifying for me when I was serving the campus where Ed got his doctorate, and we had 23 buildings and 230 students between 50 and $100 million of deferred maintenance on the campus, and all signs pointing to continued consolidation in our enrollment, continued deterioration of our physical plant, continued nervousness on the part of our donors that they were throwing good money after bad. Do you think that's like a super relaxed time to say, (laughs) does this bring me closer to God? It's easy for me to say now Hmm. that the campus wasn't our mission. The mission was to educate clergy for faith communities. It's been our mission for 213 years and we forgot it, just forgot it, because we were so stressed, we were so overwhelmed. So we had to say, I'm gonna pick between um, having this campus work for me, whereas now really I'm working for it, the mission is working for it, lose the campus, keep the mission, lose the mission, keep the campus. It's a big decision, but it's not hard if you have a clear sense of mission. Mm -hmm. That's good. Helpful. One or two more questions? Anyone? All good? Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. I hope hope that you keep thinking about all those things I said I need. (laughs) They are right here, forefront. I'll be calling you. Yes, we're going to see if they spark joy. Uh, See if they spark joy. (laughs) See if they spark joy. And if they don't, don't do it. But if they do. This is Craig from Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening to Round Hill Radio. This podcast is brought to you by the members and friends of Round Hill Community Church. You can listen to more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and roundhillcommunitychurch.org. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Thanks.